Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Right, I'm continuing our sermon series, In Jesus' Shoes, this morning. <laughs> Thank you, because I've got to welcome, welcome myself onto the stage. <laughs> when me and Simon first talked about this sermon series, looking at the different interactions of Jesus with the people around him and looking at how we can become like him, uh, I said I wanted to talk about the story in John chapter 4, when Jesus meets and talks to a Samaritan woman at the well. And it's one of my absolute favourite stories, probably in the whole Bible, because it speaks to me of the tenderness of God and how he loves the outcast so much. And it demonstrates, once again, how he seeks out the lost and the lonely and the one uh, that the world says is worthless and no good, and then he changes their story. And he often did that, didn't he? But I particularly love this one. It's a beautiful picture of God taking the woman's shame, rewriting her story and filling her and it always moves me and so that's why I wanted to speak about this today. I'm not going to read the whole passage but I am going to play a clip from the TV series The Chosen. Uh, It's obviously dramatised but for me it exactly uh, kind of encapsulates how I picture it happening. But just a bit of context, uh, because the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, wanted to cause trouble for Jesus because he was, you know, he was becoming a threat to them. He and his disciples decided to leave the Jewish town of Galilee and move on to the town of Galilee. Sorry, did I say Galilee? Judea. Judea and move on to Galilee. They came to a town called Sychar and stopped to rest at a very famous well. In fact, it was a well that um, Abraham's grandson Jacob had dug. And Jesus sat by the well and his disciples had left him to go and buy food. Maybe Jesus had a sense that this life-changing conversation was about to happen. And that's why he asked to be alone. Let's just pick up the story there. Would you give me a drink? hear me? That bad, huh? What? You, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come at noon in the heat, as you have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd still like a drink of water if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Wood. 
except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water, hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband and come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. <sighs> exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married, but he wasn't a good man. He hurt you, and it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. 
You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know. But not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon. Just the heart. <laughs> you promised. I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> Hey, wait! Your water! You forgot your um. Foxy, your man, you told me everything I ever did! Thank you. Isn't that story amazing? I love it. I love that dramatization as well. Do watch The Chosen, it's uh, really great. So as I said, that story is found in your Bibles in John chapter 4, if you do want to go and read that later on. It's interesting that uh, John records this interaction right after Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. The Samaritan woman could not be more different than Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a male Jew, a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and was Israel's teacher. He was the epitome of the best of the best that Israel had to offer. And he had a name, funnily enough, in the story. The Samaritan woman, on the other hand, could be categorised as the worst of the worst from a Jewish point of view. Just like the woman in the story that Simon talked about last week, she too is not named in the story. In fact, culturally, this woman had three strikes against her. Firstly, she was a Samaritan, as we know. Samaritans were seen as foreigners and were hated by the Jewish people of Jesus's day. There was a long-standing historical animosity between the two people groups that went back hundreds of years. In fact, it's surprising that Jesus and the disciples were even in Samaria. Jewish people would often walk around, all the way around, rather than go through Samaria. They would want to avoid that region, even though it was the most direct route. And as the Samaritan woman herself said, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She was very well aware that this Jewish man should not have been speaking to her. And secondly, she was a woman. Now, I've spoken at length before how women were treated and, class treated and classified as second-class citizens in this period of history. They did not hold value or worth in society and they were often shunned. And when Jesus' disciples came back, even they were surprised that Jesus was talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman at that, in public, on his own. There were so many taboos. Samaritan women in particular were considered to be in a perpetual state of impurity or uncleanness, even called menstruants from the cradle. 
And thirdly, and probably most significantly for her, this Samaritan woman was considered a sinner. Jesus told her, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. The rabbis disapproved of more than three husbands and three marriages. And she'd not only had three, she'd had five. And the man she was living with, her six, was, they weren't even married. Regardless of any of the circumstances involved, her community would have judged her and they would have looked at her with scorn. But remember, there was an imbalance of power when it came to marriage in the ancient world. While divorce was very easy for a man to do, it was practically impossible for a woman to instigate. So I'm speculating, of course, and it does a bit on on that uh, dramatisation, but it's it's important not to just presume what had happened. What if she hadn't wanted any of her divorces, but she had wanted to stay with the men? Her only option would have been to go along with it. And actually, her only option would have been to remarry as she wouldn't have been able to support herself in that day. This was the repeating pattern in her life. Man after man. And I'm not saying there was no blame on her part, obviously, but it was highly likely that the men in her life had long gone with no one to answer to. And yet she was left there with this growing sense from her community around her that she was damaged goods. Samaritans were labelled as unclean by Jewish people. But this woman would also have been labelled as unclean and an unclean sinner by the Samaritans in her own community. So she was an outcast amongst the outcasts, rejected by the Jewish people, rejected by her own people, and it looks like even rejected by the five husbands she'd had. She was unclean and carried around with her this stigma every day of her life. Can you imagine what that must have felt like for her? And that is why she came to the well alone in the heat of the day, because no one else would be there, she thought. And she wouldn't have to encounter the whispers and the judgment for her own community. She wanted to be on her own. She was clothed in shame. But what is shame and how does it affect us? Brené Brown, who's a professor who has researched this for over 20 years, says that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done or failed to do that makes us unworthy of connection. In other words, having done something wrong, we feel that we ourselves, not just our actions, are flawed. We are unlovable. We are unworthy. And shame is underlined by this nagging belief or suspicion that we're just not good enough. We're not adequate. But we don't just feel shame when we've done something or we haven't done something or we've missed the mark. It can also be caused by other people and it's nothing to do with anything that we have done. Shame can be the result of trauma caused to us in our childhood through abuse, all kinds of abuse, physical, emotional, um, sexual, spiritual. But the result is always the same. Trauma and abuse makes us think, I am bad. I am not enough. I am wrong, I am worthless, I am unlovable. It says that you can't belong and it covers us in shame. And sometimes we feel shame because of the environment at home or the culture we live in, like this lady. 
and has put us into shame and told us that we're not right or we don't quite fit in to the right social norms. And we see that so much even today. And that can be for so many reasons, maybe the way we look, the way we talk, how clever we are, our ethnicity, our sexuality. And shame is not the same as guilt. Guilt says, I have done something wrong and is usually productive because it causes us to change and grow. But shame says, I am wrong. And it's not constructive at all. The psychiatrist Carl Oh, was that moved on? The psychiatrist Carl Jung describes it as a soul-eating emotion. It usually causes us to shut down, to hide away, to withdraw. Again, you see this very much so with this woman. Because shame alters how we view ourselves. It affects our identity, who we think we are, and what our value is in society. And it makes us direct our focus inward and our view, our entire self, we look at ourselves in such a negative light. And studies show that this is often a major cause of depression and anxiety. Shame can truly be life-altering. It's an intensely painful feeling and it makes us feel unworthy of love from anyone and unworthy of belonging to anybody or any community. And it also becomes the block to us receiving God's love. And if we have shame, we usually don't want to talk about it. We want to hide it because it drives us into hiding. We're ashamed and embarrassed. And so it keeps control over us and ultimately rewrites our story and dictates our future. The Samaritan woman was covered in shame and she didn't place any value on her own life. She thought that by going to the well in the middle of the day, when it was the hottest, no one else would be there and she would be unseen. She thought that she could hide. But this story of her encounter with Jesus shows us that Jesus always sees us. We can't hide from him. He always sees us and he looks at us with love. It's not a bad seeing. His seeing is not negative. It's not a judgmental seeing. It's safe and caring and loving seeing and that should make us feel safe and secure because Jesus didn't care that she was a Samaritan that she wasn't a Jew or that she was a woman he didn't even care about her past he wanted to be there to talk to her to care for her and to save her so he sat in the heat of the day and waited And I love that he showed up for her in the middle of her mess. He interrupted her life and he rewrote her story in that moment. And that's what he wants to do for all of us. He can turn up for any of us in the middle of our chaos and the middle of our mess. Obviously, he's not here walking the earth, but he turns up for us in nature, in a person that might have a conversation with us, maybe in a gift bag that arrives for us when we're in a time of need. God wants to show up for us in the heat of our day, in our mess, when we want to be alone, when we think um, we should be hiding from him. You may think you're hiding from him now, that you put your best face on and you come to church and no one knows what's really going on. But I just want to encourage you that God does see you're not really hiding from him at all because he knows everything about you and he doesn't see you as shameful. God's always waiting for us, even when we want to hide. When we don't want to be seen, he's watching and he's waiting. And he always sees us. 
Jesus went against the cultural norm of the day to bring restoration to this lonely and sad woman. And God doesn't look at people through the same lens that we perhaps do. We think that he looks at us the way we look at other people, where we are judgmental, um, where we withhold forgiveness, where we often treat people differently or discriminately. God's lens is always love, love in its purest form, because God is love. He has no other choice but to look at us with love. And when Jesus spoke to this woman, he looked at her through the lens of pure and unconditional love. And I don't think she'd ever encountered that before in her life. And his intention was to make her feel safe and protected, to lift her out of shame and restore her honour. And Jesus offered the woman living water that would lead to healing and eternal life. Now, living water was the term uh, used to refer to water that moves like in a river. And in that culture and time, it was the preferred water that they would use for ritual cleansing. And so this woman would have exactly understood the context that Jesus was meaning when he said living water. It was a cleansing water that he was offering. And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus was offering her the opportunity not to quench her thirst, but to become clean on the inside. This water would fill the brokenness and fill that void, that place that shame was occupying with love, with the love of his father. And when she said she wanted the water, Jesus spoke to her with gentleness and kindness and told her everything about her life, that everything that she was so ashamed of. But he wasn't calling out her sin to condemn her. He was calling out her shame to free her. He wasn't there to judge her. He was there to love her. And that's what Jesus is always there for us to do. When Jesus asked her to go and get a husband, she had to tell him that she didn't have one. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And obviously we, we don't read about this in the story, but I loved when, when Jesus started naming her husbands. I mean, you can just imagine how absolutely powerful that would have been for this woman. And it was life-changing Having five husbands, as I said, seems like she'd been continually sinning through her adult life because culturally women were stoned to death for engaging in idolatry or divorcing their husbands. But more likely it was that men kept leaving her. You know, we need to understand that. And as, as I studied this, even I was like, oh, wow, you know, you just think, yeah, she's had five husbands. Gosh, you know, what a life. But actually, this woman could have just been in impossible situations time after time after time. And she carried the shame of not being a suitable wife. Like, why did these husbands keep leaving her or not treating her well? Some of them may have died. Um, The shame of being rejected and abandoned and unloved was over her, over and over again. And Jesus knew all about that past. And he brought the shame right into the open for her so that he could address it because he obviously found it so hard that she was hiding away and living in shame. And it's in that moment that he made her feel seen and known. From being unseen and unknown, in that moment, Jesus saw her and he knew her. He uncovered her shame and he held it tenderly. 
Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that was like? The woman who lived every single day with the stigma of rejection, of being unclean, living with shame and embarrassment, had her life drastically changed by this encounter with Jesus. He washed her clean that day and made her somebody again. And not only was her shame removed, but she was also given honour in replace of that shame. She started off as a social outcast, but because of a conversation with Jesus, she goes back to her town and with a newfound confidence and tells them about the man who she'd just met. This remarkable encounter. She becomes the first evangelist recorded, actually, in the Gospels, and she tells the story to everyone she meets. She's no longer hidden, but running into the town in freedom. And it has a massive impact on the town that she's from. It says they came out of the town and made their way towards him. Isn't that a beautiful picture of redemption and of a life turned around? Her legacy is not her past mistake. It's these few words. Come see a man who told me everything I did. This ostracised woman of scandal and shame was the one who introduced the entire town to the expected Messiah so that they too could find new life in him. She instantly changed from that sinful, shameful woman to that woman who introduced us to the Saviour. What an honour that would have been. Her life turned from shame to honour because she met Jesus. Well, what can we learn from this story, from this interaction? Well, the first thing is that God loves us unconditionally. Just as Jesus saved the Samaritan woman from a shameful situation in the first century, he can do the same for each of us today, for any any one of us. She was fearful, terrified of judgment, convinced that she was permanently scarred and unclean, and she felt like she was an offence to God. Her shame crippled her, and yet Jesus came to her and transformed her. He welcomed her, forgave her, and rewrote her story. And she became, in that moment, a loved child of the King, and she knew it. (coughs) And Father God still loves to rescue us. For those of us who feel shame and embarrassment, he wants to give us praise and honour in exchange and a new identity to live from. And he's always inviting us to come to him. It's not a one-time thing. He always wants us to come and be healed and cleansed and restored and loved by him. Every time we mess up, he's still inviting us to him. There's never a time in our life when we need to hide away from him. And when we interact with him, the living God, we too can be transformed like the Samaritan woman was on that day. Her shame came from a mixture of her life choices and her circumstances, what she'd done, but also what had been done to her. Both had impacted her. And this story shows us how much God loves and treasures each one of us, no matter what we've done or what the world or who the world tells us we are or our teachers, our parents or who our friends say we are. It shows us that God loves us no matter what has been done to us or who has said what over us. It shows us that Jesus is waiting for that conversation with us, even when we want to hide away. And it can be tempting to think that our mistakes, either done by us or done to us, are so bad that God can't see past them. And that's simply not true. Our mistake is thinking that our past is bigger than God. God can handle anything that you or I are ashamed of because he already knows. 
He's waiting to bring that shame into his presence to exchange it for praise and honour. And when the woman at the well admitted to her past husbands, Jesus didn't blink an eye. He wasn't shocked. He already knew all about her life and her story. There was absolutely nothing that she could have told him on that day that he didn't already know. And it's just the same for us. And we're kidding ourselves if we think that there are parts of our life that God doesn't know about, that we think we can hide away from him. And when we take courageous steps to be honest about our past, sharing our vulnerabilities, being real with our friends, with our community and with God, he will, we will start to come out of those dark places and out of the prison that shame has kept us in. When we let God in to those places, it really does have the power to lift our heads and change our story. And God's interaction with us is always one of love and grace. And he always wants to lift shame off us, to give us a new identity, one of truth and honour and love. So have we truly experienced and entered into God's agape love, God's unconditional love? Do you really know that? Do you know that you are loved unconditionally, regardless of who you are, who the world says you are, or what you've done, or what has been done to you? And it's so important that we understand and experience this for ourselves first so that we can then share that with other people. And secondly, we can learn that no one is disqualified from God using them. Sometimes, I think like this woman, we feel that God can't possibly use us because of the mistakes we've made or in fact because of what has been done to us, because we are covered in shame. But God can always, in fact he wants to use us to bring transformation to others. Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts, comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. When we know God's love, it should compel us to go to others and comfort them and offer them what we know, this living water. Paul goes on to say that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And the inference here is that jars of clay um, were, were like humble things. They were prone to cracking and they were imperfect, but it's the greatness of God within us that's the power to transform others. So it doesn't matter how broken we feel or how useless we feel, how we've disqualified us. It doesn't matter what we've done or what has been done to us or what we haven't done. We are never disqualified from being used by God to make a difference. We are the vessel that God uses to bring love to the world. And as we see in this encounter with Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it doesn't matter how our life has played out so far, for good or for bad. We're never disqualified from having a purpose and then living out that calling. The woman could have just stayed in the shadows, couldn't she? She could have just had this loving encounter with Jesus and she could have stayed hidden in the shadows. But the love and the grace that she received on that day that she encountered with Jesus gave her this new identity and a purpose and it spurred her on to go and make a difference and share her good news. And she didn't hesitate you know, she didn't go home to think about it. It compelled her as Jesus rewrote her story. And just as she shared her life-changing experience with her community, we're also called to share our experience of God with others so that they might make their way towards him. When we can talk about, or even better, show others 
how God has changed us, people will pay attention. When people can see the change in us, can see us living with joy and purpose, when they feel they're not being judged for who they are, when their stories are listened to, they will be drawn to Jesus, just like those people were. Because people are looking for answers. They are looking for someone to fill that void. They often want to know that there is someone who loves them despite their failings, despite all the mess and the brokenness that's gone on in their lives, despite all the stuff that's been spoken over them or done to them or what the world has said about them all their life. They want to know that there is someone greater who doesn't judge them, who can forgive them and love them. You may not be living in shame today. You may have never lived in shame and thank God for that. That's brilliant and amazing. And you may have been set free from shame in the past and that's also wonderful. But we need to remember that there are so many people in our society who live in shame and they do feel shame. They feel that they don't belong and that they don't have a place. And this beautiful story is not only a lesson in how God loves us, but it also gives an example for us to follow of how to treat one another, especially those who maybe aren't like us, who others think are outcasts or not good enough. People who've counted themselves out, who live in shame because of things they've done or because of what others have done to them. Or those people who've been sidelined by society and treated with contempt or even disgust. How do we treat those people who don't feel like they fit in? So lastly, do we love others unconditionally? Are we ready and open and waiting to hear people, to hear their stories, to speak love and life over them, to speak truth into them, to hold their shame and their brokenness with tenderness and show them the love of God? through our actions, to withhold judgment and point them to a God who loves them and forgives them. We mustn't underestimate how our interactions with people can impact them for good or for bad. And this story really does show us how to behave, how we must love others the same way that Jesus loved people. Jesus gave us a blueprint and a pattern for a church family a community where people don't need to hide away or feel ashamed because they think they're going to be judged or treated differently, where anyone can feel safe no matter what, no matter how vulnerable they might feel about their past or their story or their identity. A safe church family where people don't have to retreat or look for ways to avoid contact, but can come wholeheartedly into a place where they are fully known and fully accepted and fully honoured. That's the place we want Riverside to be, isn't it? A safe church family where people can come in and feel that they are totally loved and totally accepted and where they can exchange that shame for honour. I believe that as people experience that genuine place of belonging and connection and sanctuary within the church community, they will draw closer to God. And that is one of the most powerful ways for the gospel and the love of God to be spread. Because when people know that they're accepted, know that they're loved by the people around them, then they are open to knowing God. They are open, more open to knowing about the God who loves them. So when we show God's love to people, we will build trust with them. 
I know from my own experience that when I have listened to people tell their story without any judgment, it then opens up more of a conversation. It gives me the equity and the trust from them to maybe offer to pray for them. And if they've already known Jesus, then I've prayed healing and wholeness for them. And if they haven't known Jesus, then it's given me an opportunity to maybe introduce them to Jesus. And then they can make that decision to follow him for themselves. Introducing someone to Jesus who has always felt shame and felt like they don't belong anywhere. To the God who loves them, no matter what, is such a privilege. And it's a gift that we all carry and one that we should really nurture. The power to unlock somebody who has been bound for years, who's in hiding and living in a prison of fear and shame is something we shouldn't take for granted as a people. It's something we really need to think about and work on because just like Jesus did for that woman, we have the same power within us, within our jars of clay to change people's lives. I really do believe this story is an encouragement to all of us to live in the light of what God has done to really understand his unconditional love for ourselves and to be set free if we need to so that we can then tell others about his unconditional love and to set people free. If we want to walk in Jesus' shoes, then we must create a loving community of grace that leads people to Jesus and his very great love for them. That's surely our highest calling, a community without judgment, a community of acceptance, to never be people of judgment, but always be people of grace, to listen to people's story and reassure them of how very loved they are, to be a strong community of love and grace and acceptance. Because the love of God is the greatest and most powerful tool that we all carry. And if we use it, I honestly believe we can bring transformation to our communities around us. So let's start a movement of people who, because of our testimony, because of our story and what God has done for us, because of the way we can show that God loves them, they will begin to make their way towards him. If you're able, why don't you stand with me? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside. <laughs>